Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, brought to you by AcmeScience.com. On today's episode, I talk to the Pied Piper of Mathematics himself, Professor Joseph Gallion from University of Minnesota Duluth. We talk about his book, the mathematics movie Hard Problems that he executive produced, how he cracked the driver's license code, and way more about the Beatles than you would ever expect on a math podcast. Here we go. This is Strongly Connected Components. I'm here with uh, Professor Joseph Gallion from University of Minnesota Duluth. Hello, Professor Gallion. Hello. Professor Gallion, the reason uh, most people who listen to this will probably know you is your uh, contemporary abstract algebra book, uh, which is, it was the book that I learned abstract algebra from, as a matter of fact. Uh, What's it like having a book that is so widely used in undergraduate math education? <laughs> well, <laughs> I I'm happy that I'm able to communicate with people. I I like to communicate mathematics. That's my specialty. I think I like to write. I like to speak. So I give lots of talks across the nation, and I write articles for the monthly in the math magazine, the College Mathematical Journal. So the textbook is a way I can communicate with students and professors, but mostly students. The other talks and journal articles and so on, you're sort of communicating more with your peers. But this is one good way to communicate with students. And I like the, I, I'm tr- I think of myself as like a Pied Piper for, for mathematics or a Pied Piper for abstract algebra. I like to, if I'm excited about something, I want to talk to somebody about it. I want to yeah. ex- display that. And so that's what I do with my book. When I wrote my book, I had, um, I wasn't, of course, I hoped for commercial success, but what I wanted to do was pick the topics that I thought were the most interesting. You know, I have some, when I I first wrote the book, there were some topics that didn't appear in other abstract algebra books, but I put them in mine because I thought they were neat and I enjoyed them, and so I said, hey, more people ought to know about these things. So that's, that's what I was trying to do. Uh, there's a there's a part in that book specifically that I I really found interesting because it was a lot different than what you find in most books, and you put a lot of histories of Correct. specific mathematicians who had uh, to do with abstract algebra. What was the sort of thinking behind uh, including that in a textbook where textbooks usually uh, deal more with results and not with the people? Yeah, I, I didn't want the book to be sterile. I wanted it to be I have a con- notice the title contemporary abstract algebra. A lot of my biographies are people were still alive. Of course, I have Gauss and Lagrange, uh, those people. But I also wanted to have people that are alive now, because this is the golden age of mathematics right now. And I thought, you know, a book should be not just facts and figures. It should have, you know, well, not just theorems and proofs. I should say and exercises. So I have history. I have. Uh, pictures, I have quotes from Beatles songs, I have numerous quotes from other people, I just thought... I believe there was even a quote from The Simpsons in there. That's right, that's right. <laughs> uh, I, here, 
if I like something, I try to spread my... You know, I, I'm an apostle. I, I try to go out and find converts to things that I like. Yeah, I, uh, you had you'd mentioned a little bit ago uh, the idea of uh, being a Pied Piper for mathematics. Is it uh, an opinion of yours that perhaps mathematics is not as widely appreciated as it could be, as it should be? Yes, I think that's true. You know, I'm, I just finished a term as president of the MAA, Mathematical Association of America. When I ran for office, they have three people on the ballot, and each candidate gets to write a certain number of words saying what you hope to achieve. And one of the things I wanted to achieve is a better appreciation and understanding of the general public for mathematics. Now, math students aren't, you know, the general public, but <laughs> no, we're not. it's the same. I, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, um, I, I want pe people to read my book. I hope they get a little bit excited about mathematics and say, hey, this stuff is fun. You know, it's, it's enjoyable. It's a good way to spend your time learning mathematics. So that's what I was hoping to achieve. I do feel that... Uh I mean, other than, you know, through books and talks, do you, do you feel that uh, perhaps that there's some other way that we might be able to get the vast public uh, interested in mathematics? Is there some it's way that we sell. can? It's a very hard sell. I've been trying, for example, I actually am ex executive producer of a documentary film that's just now was um, came to public television, national public television, American public television, actually it's called. Um, by some way of syndication, it started in October of 2099. And in October, November, and December, there have already been almost 1,200 telecasts. Okay, and which documentary was it? It's called Hard Problems. Oh, okay. And it's a documentary about the United States Olympiad team, 2006. And it's about the whole process, how the team is selected. Uh, they interviewed the parents, they interviewed the students, and then it, the cameras goes with them. It was Slovenia, the international mathematics Mathematical uh, competition. <laughs> I am a international mathematical Olympiads. Okay, that's you know. So, so it's it's about that whole process. But what I hoped is that um, these young kids that are selected, there's six selected. There's hundreds and hundreds of thousands stars. It's like an NCAA tournament. You you start out and if you do well, you go to the next round, the next round, and finally you end with six. These six represent the United States. So I thought if pe the general public, if the general public could see the passion that these young kids have for mathematics, the love they have, the, how much their effort they're willing to devote to it. And also I wanted to see how their parents and their families support them. Um, most people, young people that succeed, uh, I'm not saying you can't succeed on your own, but a lot of people have tremendous support from their families and their friends and so on. And sometimes the families make sacrifices of time and effort and so on, um, even money, and to to help their children do well. Anyway, that's all depicted in the film. And um, and so that's another way that I hope... Um, I'm guessing we've had a half a million viewers already from the general public. I don't have numbers. We'll have numbers... We'll actually be able to get numbers later. But right now, I'm just estimating if you have about 1,200 telecasts, say only 500 people are watching on average. Well, that's over half a million right there. And we, it's going to be in syndication for four years. So it might reach millions of people. And um, I, I just hope they say, you know, I, I can understand why some of these kids love math. It's, it's a subculture. But, um, but it's an interesting one, and I, I hope it does some good. And I hope it inspires some young people, and I hope it inspires parents to help their children get excited about something. Of course, you know, very few people are going to be Olympiads, but that's not the point. The point is... 
you help people, young kids, uh, succeed in what they enjoy, what they like? Oh, I, now, this, this movie has been on television, I believe, back in 1991. You yourself also found some media attention. Uh, it might be something else that other people have seen. And it had to do with uh, driver's license <laughs> yeah. numbers, I believe. That's correct? That's right, yeah. The, um, I, it turns out that a number of states had secret codes for encoding, secret algorithms for encoding driver's license numbers. Minnesota was one. There's many others. So somehow I got, a student asked me if I knew how it was done. And I said, well, I'll check into it. And I was able to figure out the code for Minnesota and several other states, Missouri, New York, Wisconsin. Anyway, um, and then I wrote an article about it in Math Magazine, uh, signing driver's license numbers. It started out with a quote from the Beatles. It was an obscure Beatles song. It was never on an album, but, it, well, it was on a B-side of a 45. And it's, you know my name, look up the number. So in Minnesota, your number goes by the name. It, your, your name is encoded into a number. So anyway, um, I wrote an article about it, and then the MA, Mathematical Association of America, uh, kind of put out what you might call something like a press release. They sent out a little note to some newspapers, the science editors, and said there's an article in the math magazine about how this mathematician from Minnesota figured out how to de uh, decode the scheme, the algorithm. And anyway, it was picked up by a number of newspapers, you know, since the little note went out to newspapers, some some people actually called me, newspaper writers called me and said, I'd like to interview, just like you're interviewing me. And I told them how I did it. Anyway, once it got, then it got in the newspapers, it was in, carried in quite a few newspapers. And um, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, Minneapolis Star Tribune, and so on. And anyway, then a television station, uh, Minnesota Public Television, called me, and they, they broadcast the network. In other words, all the public television stations, not just one. It was a network program. So it was broadcast across the state in Minnesota. And actually, I've got another publicity along the same lines. Like, there's a, a very popular writer nowadays, Malcolm Gladwell. He has yeah. like three or four best-selling tipping points. Yeah, tipping points. Outliers. Point. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, forget the other ones. But anyway, the uh, he picked up on some things I did. I did things, wrote articles on barcodes, zip codes, things like that. He was a science writer for the Washington Post. Yeah. So he wrote two articles. He wrote one on driver's license numbers because he read my article. And then he wrote one on um, the universal product code, uh, things like that. And so I got some publicity that way. Um, you want more on publicity? Oh. <laughs> uh, I wrote an article about... <laughs> I, I jointly wrote an article with a few other people about a year and a half ago about uh, gender differences in uh, mathematics. And it turns out we only looked at the elite, the like the one out of half a million, the four standard deviations above the mean, the top, the top math, like the people that go to the math, International Math Olympia, that caliber, people who win the Putnam exam. Yeah. If you look at those, in the United States, there's very, very few women on the team, hardly ever, on these teams, and hardly ever. There's only been one American woman win the Putnam exam, and it's been around about close to 70 years. Why is that? On the other hand, if you go to places like Romania or Bulgaria or Singapore, their women do extremely well. Um, so, you know, why is it that some cultures, you could, some people think it's genetic, actually. I don't think it's genetic because you mean the genes in Romania and Bulgaria are better than the genes in England and France? You know, I, I don't think so. Or East German genes are better than West German genes, <laughs> that type of thing. Anyway, uh, so we wrote an article about it. It was published in a notice of the American Mathematical Society. 
and it was picked up a full big article, the front page of the 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 national section of the New York Times. That's not the front oh. page of the Times itself. Yeah. But the national section. It was more than a page long. It was about a half a page on the front page and another half a page on the second page. And then that goes on like the wire service and other people pick it up. And then one of the edit uh, op ed people for the New York Times, he wrote an editorial piece commenting on the article that was written about our article, right? And it was the most emailed article of the day. His opinion piece was the most email article of the day, and it was in the top five for the whole week. So, um, and then, you know, once it's Boston Globe ran it, and lots and lots of newspapers ran it. In fact, newspapers all over the world were running it, and it was picked up by a lot of outlets, a lot of, like, uh, one of them, I don't know, was Science News or Science or something like that. Uh, at the end of the year, they listed something like the most important stories or something of 2009, and ours was listed as one of them. So I, I got a lot of publicity that way, too. Now, we're, we're here in San Francisco right now for the joint mathematics meetings. And one of the things that uh, you are doing here is you have been teaching a mini course uh, on getting undergraduate, undergraduates interested in research. And I'm sure that, that has to do with the very successful research experience for undergraduate program that uh, you run in Duluth. Now, I, some people might not know what an REU is. If you could give a little bit of an explanation of REUs in general, and specifically yours. REU stands, it's a National Science Foundation funded program. It's, it means research experience for undergraduates. It's been around since 1987, but even before that, I started in 77, but it had different initials. It was URP in those days. But, the, uh, but what's now called REU, that REUs are now generic, like Kleenex, even if you don't have the Kleenex brand, or people say, make me a Xerox copy when they mean photocopy. So REU now more generally means it's some undergraduate program for, uh, a research program for undergraduate students. And I've been running, as I said, since 1977. And that's one of my Pied Piper things again. I'm, I want to I try to promote research by undergraduates. Now, when I started, very few faculty members were doing this kind of thing. Um, of course, they had honors projects at places like Princeton and Caltech and MIT, or even you know, liberal arts colleges like Carleton and St. Olaf and so on. So I'm not saying it didn't exist, but it wasn't widespread. And also the feeling was, well, really undergraduates can't really do research. That was kind of the attitude. It wasn't required. Well, it's not required now to get into graduate school, but if, you don't, if you're trying to get into a top graduate school and you haven't done any, you're disadvantaged greatly. It's, 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 it's more, much more expected now. So anyway, um, the feeling was, you know, really undergraduates couldn't do research, but I, I thought that under the right circumstances they could. And it was up to the professors to find the right problems and match them with the right students and put in the time and effort to, uh, you have to be a cheerleader and, a, and make sure that they're not getting too frustrated. You have to give them hints when needed and so on. So anyway, um, it's been spreading and now it's, it's very widespread. It's very popular. Um, for example, there's probably going to be six, 700 undergraduates at this meeting. 20 years ago, there might have been five. In fact, I, I, some, I have some data. I forget when it is. I think it was something like 19... I forget the year now. But anyway, I have the data in somewhere when I, I give talks on this. And at one point, I think it was 1996, it's the first time that, the, that these people were keeping track of undergraduates by people that run the meeting. Yeah. They didn't keep track of undergraduates because none were showing up. But the first time they actually kept track of how many undergraduates are giving talks, 
They didn't have poster sessions in those days. But giving talks, there were a total of six. And four of those came with me, four out of six. But now there's, I don't know, a huge number, if you count posters and talks together. There's not room for 600 students to give talks. Yes. There's just not room on the schedule. But that's what's great about the posters, because you can have hundreds and hundreds of people put on posters in one concentrated time slot. But in any case, so undergraduate participation at this meeting now is, is very high, six, 700. In fact, I have a goal that this, by this meeting, I mean the joint mathematics meetings every January. I set a goal when I was president. It's not the MA goal, it's my personal goal. And I'd like to see 1,000 undergraduate students here by 2015. I picked 2015 because it's the, one, it's the 100th anniversary of the MAA. And I thought that would, and the meetings can be held in Washington, D.C., where the MAA is located. So I thought that's a perfect target to hit the 1,000 level. Now, we have funding the Mathematical Association of America. One of the reasons, there's many reasons, but one of the reasons we're getting more and more students is we're providing financial support from the National Science Foundation. The MAA has a grant from the National Science Foundation to help students come to this meeting. And so I, I've been trying to do those things for over 30 years. I'm trying to promote mathematic research in undergraduates. And this mini-course is an example. I mean, I can only do so much myself, but I can... I think more important than what I do is what I, the example I set for others, and I can encourage other professors, you can do this too. So that's, that's what you are listening to Strongly Connected Components. The guest on today's episode is Professor Joseph Gallion from the University of Minnesota Duluth, and I am your host, Samuel Hansen. I'm just popping in here to remind you to please go check out acmescience.com. I'm currently keeping a journal there of my weekly papers for history of mathematics that I am taking right now, which I think could very well be found interesting, as well as other blog posts that I put up, and you can catch links to the podcast about the lighter side of mathematics at acmescience.com also has combinations and permutations. And if you ever want to leave any feedback or give any suggestions, or perhaps you're a mathematician you would like to be interviewed, just email me at samuel at acmescience.com. And while you're over there, check out our forum too, why not? Now, let's get back to the interview. Now, uh, you are, you're also chairing a set of talks here on uh, mathematics and sports. Correct. And I'm sure that that's something to do. I believe that you also teach a course in this, or you have in the past. I have, yes. Now, what what is the intersect? I mean, I, other than well, I imagine you probably do touch on sabermetrics and things yes, like that. Yes, of course. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the more unexpected uh, collisions of mathematics and sports? Well, really, mathematics is everywhere. If you have data, if you it's, every sport, just about every sport has oh. large volumes of data. Yes. Not only that, it's readily accessible now with the web, right? Yeah. So this is a perfect opportunity. You can always bring some kind of, you know, mathematical spotlight to illuminate something. To you know, strategies, uh, statistical data, and so on. And well, for for this Math Awareness 2010 that's coming up, I'm chair of the committee. And one of the things I did is solicited articles. I wrote to people that I knew that were interested in mathematics and mathematicians that were interested in sports. And I said, could you write an article? But we have an article. One of the articles is about racing tires for NASCAR. Um, there's a lot of mathematics involved that racing tires are specially designed for these NASCAR races. It's not the yeah. street tires. But there's a lot of mathematics involved in how you design the tires. And so that's one example. Um, 
Doug Arnold, he's president of the SIAM, Society of Industrial Applied Mathematicians. He has an article about the, the mathematical description of a golf swing because it's what's called a double pendulum. Your arms, the way you hold the golf club is a pendulum, but, the, but, but that pendulum has attached another pendulum to it, the club. And so it's a pendulum on a pendulum. And there's equations that can describe that. You can describe the motions. Even There's even equations, for example, that the, the golfing association has rules about the size and weight of a golf ball, but there's no rules on how the dimple patterns are. And by having different dimple patterns, you can have different characteristics. So there's, there's mathematics there. How is the best way? to arrange the dimple patterns on a golf ball <laughs> to get the longest distance. Any, and well, there's you know, huge amounts of things like, um, for example, I had an undergraduate student wrote an article that's on the web, uh, Math Awareness website about that the, he was a, on the track team in a, like a Division three school, and they have a national championship meet, and they actually say such and such team won the national championship but the scoring system doesn't make any sense. Um, it, 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 for example, you could. Have, this is literally true. If you had one superstar athlete, that one athlete, if that one person won like three gold medals in this championship, that team might be the number one ranked team. But that could be a one-person team. One person team is not going <laughs> to suppose. Suppose that one person team matched the second place team. Well, whoa. That guy would win his three events, but he would ha- they would have no chance to win the meet. Yeah. So it's based on it's based on the the perform- The team championship is awarded based on the performance of a one or two superstars on the team, which didn't seem to make sense. So anyway, this student, undergraduate student, he was able to devise an intelligent way that, that to assign to determine the winner of uh, when you have the national championship. What's an intelligent way to figure out? Here's what the winning team should be. That if if Team A is the winning team in the national championship, then in any dual meet, it's reasonable that they should be be able to beat any yes. other team. But that's not the way it was. But <laughs> under his scheme, it would work that way. So anyway, there's you know, um, let's see what else. Oh, there's mm. <laughs> I'm trying to think what. Else. Well, of course, we have articles on baseball. There's an, uh, yeah. a number of articles on football. Like one popular thing is. Um, uh, how they, you know, in, in college football, the division, the top division, the bowl championship series, they have that voting. It goes by voting a sports. Yeah. So one popular thing is what's an intelligent way to, to based on the statistical performance of the teams, an intelligent way to decide who's the best. It, it's the, the articles generally agree playoff. Would be the well, thing. there is no playoff. But, <laughs> but the point is that's why these articles are useful because since there, if there is a playoff, yeah. you don't need you don't yes. need it to have. Okay, so anyway, yeah, that's another thing. Like somebody wrote an article on if you look at um, a playbook for National Football League, um, there's you know there's they have so many plays, but then there's all kind of nuances you can make on that. But anyway, it's a combinatorial problem. Given given that you can align, you know, put your players in certain positions and um, then there's different types of de- you're going to rush the passer, you're not going to rush the passer, depending on the situation. Anyway, they, they did this calculation and they were able to come up with a number of different plays on defense that a, that a team could have. So that's that's a nice combinatorial counting problem. Now, it's it's not just mathematics that you have been interested in. If if you've been paying attention to this interview, as since you're listening, you probably should be. Uh, you will have noticed that uh, Professor Gallion here has mentioned the Beatles uh, Quite a few times, and that's uh, that's not a mistake. I I, I believe. 
uh, not an accident. Yeah, not an accident. <laughs> uh, because I believe you have actually branched your teaching out to yes. teach on the Beatles before. I've, taught, I've been teaching a course on the Beatles. A regular, it's a humanities course, not a music course. Yeah. Uh, the course is called The Lives and Music of the Beatles. And the reason I mention lives is because they've had incredible impact on culture, not just the United States, but all over the world. Cultural impact is enormous to the Beatles. People who really haven't studied it don't realize the enormous impact they had. It's just, it is overwhelming, even to this day. Uh, I don't know if you know it, but for example, this is the end of this decade. It depends on how you count, but the yeah. news media is counting. This is the end of the zeros or something. And um, and the Beatles came out the, the second best seller, most pop. They sold more records. Second, they ranked second in selling music over this last, last decade. In the 90s, they were the number one. Now, Eminem turned out to be number one for the, this most recent decade, but that's only because of the way they count. It turns out that the, the Beatles albums were remastered. All the Beatles albums were remastered yeah. and released in, I think it was September, uh, September, what was it? September 9th, I think, 090909 yeah. uh, this year. And, and the way they count sales, is for some reason, these weren't counted. It's, it's, they have some peculiar rules. But if you count those, they would have been the most popular m m musical act in the whole decade. But um, anyway, um, so I've been a huge follower of the Beatles since they came to America. Um, you know, they came here uh, February 7th, 1964, to be on the Ed Sullivan Show. And actually, the, the day they landed, I saw them, you know, well, I, I, I didn't see that, but now I've seen footage. But I, I did see them on the Ed Sullivan Show on Sunday. But the day they landed, when they were on the Ed Sullivan Show, I really didn't know what to think of their music. I didn't say, hey, this is great. I love this. This is brand new stuff. I thought, these guys are kind of odd. Their music sounds odd. They kind of looked odd. And, but I, it was a, kind of a curiosity. I just wanted to see, because they were getting all this publicity, I wanted to see what all this, this fuss was about. But I'd say within a month or two afterwards, I started, hey, this, this music's pretty good. And um, anyway, I became sort of a, well, the word Beatle fan, it's really fanatic, means, you know, I, if you looked it up in the dictionary, it'd probably say extreme passion about something. And so I'd been following the Beatles since 1964, and the big breakthrough came when my wife bought me a book one time as a Christmas present. It's called The Beatles Forever. And I didn't... I, I just didn't listen to their music before that. I didn't realize you could study a rock group like you study Beethoven or like you study uh, some World War II or something yeah. like that. But it turned out that I said, this is fascinating. And that's where the lives come in. I didn't realize, uh, I didn't know much about their lives. I just knew about their career. And I, I just knew about their music. But once I started uh, finding out about their lives, I said, this is really interesting. So anyway, I've been teaching a course for, I'd say, about 30 years in the humanities department. And I used to teach it once a year and then face-to-face, -face, like a regular lecture, like, like, like you teach calculus. But then about five years ago, I started teaching it online. It turns out that's much easier for me. I don't think it has some disadvantages because the students don't get to see my excitement for the group. Yes. And I can also provide a lot of insight that I can't provide online. But in any case, on the other hand, I do teach it regularly now. In other words, I teach it in the spring, a fall semester, and then I teach it in the spring semester, and I even teach it in summer school. It's just online. And, um, and the students really like it. I, I, it. Teaching a humanities course is totally different than teaching a math course. Like, they, they're graded not, they're not graded like any math course. They're not graded on 
how much they memorize or any list or they don't have to know any facts or figures. They, they see, they watch a video or they listen to an album and they just tell me what they think. They, they tell me their opinion, their reaction to it. So it's based on, on your feelings about what you heard and your thoughts. And, and I say I like a thoughtful report. I, I don't want you to say the first song was this, the second song was this. Tell me what you thought about the song, what you liked about it, what you didn't like. Anyway, um, but the reason I um, find it totally remarkable is, is people will say something like, um, there's Beatle anthologies, videos, and I have lots of videos. Those are just some of them. Yes. I have all kinds of videos. And people say, well, I'll watch it with my mother. Or somebody might be a mother, and, and they watch it with their 8-year-old or 10-year-old or 15-year-old. I mean, there's some old online you can get older people. So people watch it with, uh, with their loved ones or their family or their friends and so on. You know, if the kids living in dorm, they say, I watched it with my roommate. They don't do math with the roommate. I mean, no. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the roommate's not taking the course, right? So, so that's nice. Another nice thing is, for example, somebody, this is, it happens every now and then, not, not half the class, but every now and then somebody will say, like it's the last video or the you know, last video in a series, and they'll say, I'm really sad to see that this is the last one. And then they'll, some people will say something, it brought a tear to my eye, it made me start to cry. Literally, there's, every time I teach the course, there's some students that say there's something, something in the course that made them cry. Um, there's a fabulous film that was out last year called Across the Universe, a musical. Everything's based on the Beatles. There's you know, something like 30 Beatles songs, but the whole storyline's based on the Beatles. The characters are named after Beatle people. The characters in the film are, are, are you know, follow Beatle events and so on. But in any case, um, there's a scene in there where um, where a young black boy is... There, there were literally riots in Detroit in 1968. Um, black people were rioting over one thing when Martin Luther King was assassinated was, was, was one part of it. But in any case... So in the film, they depict this, and they show this young boy, about young black boy, probably about 10 years old, and he was caught in a crossfire and he was shot. But in any case, he was singing... When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And then the kid's shot. Well, anyway, when I say watch this video, I say make sure you have Kleenex at hand <laughs> because it's, it's a tearful thing. Yes. It's very sad. And then, and then it shows the funeral of the boy. Uh, so the boy starts singing the song, then he gets shot, and then it's picked up in his funeral. And you see this, um, this group of three black women, and they're, I'd call them gospel singers. And if you listen to the song, let it be, it could easily be a gospel yes. song, and it actually has that flavor when it switches over from the young boy. But um, anyway, yeah, that's so. It's a completely different course, and people people write me letters at the end of the course and say how much they they love the course. They really enjoyed this course. It was one of their favorites, and so on. And like some people say, a lot of people start the course, but don't really know much about the Beatles. They heard the Beatles. They heard of the Beatles. They know a few of the popular songs. And, but by the way, a lot of times they'll say something like, I didn't know that song was a Beatles song. They had maybe heard it by Aerosmith. It's to come together yes. by Aerosmith. So, so there's a lot of things like that. But, um, uh, and they, you know, I get, so I get these nice letters from people saying how much they enjoy it. And they say something like, I'm a Beatles fan forever. I never got a letter from calculus students <laughs> saying I'm a calculus student forever or something. <laughs> Although, you know, once in a while I get nice comments about how much students enjoyed a course or how much they enjoy math. But it's not the same way. It, it, um, it's just the nature of the subject. Uh, music is it's easy for people to um, 
they're not majoring in music or they're not majoring in humanities, but they, they pick up a course and they, it's an enjoyable thing for them. And, and uh, I don't know how to what extent this happens, but I hope they really are lifetime Beatle fans. In other words, they'll pay attention or they'll hear a Beatles song and they're more alert to Beatle references and so on. Like a lot of, there's a movie, I Am Sam. It has huge numbers of Beatles songs in there. The, again, it's similar to, it's not a musical, but a lot of the, the pieces of the movie are based on Beatle history and so on, um, Beatle incidences. And um, so anyway, they say something like, so it's required for the course. And then they say, you know, they'll write their report. And they say, I actually saw this movie when it first came out, but I didn't notice all the Beatle references. I didn't notice the Beatle posters. I didn't notice that the little girl was named Lucy after Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. I didn't notice all that. Well, now they'll notice those things. And like there's a commercial on right now that uses All You Need Is Love. Starbucks has an All You Need Is Love campaign. A lot of Beatles songs are used on commercials. But they wouldn't notice that without my course. It's just another commercial. And, um, well, there was a, a film on, a documentary film on public television just a few months ago called The Beatles Rock the Kremlin. And that was about the fact that um, a, a lot of people from the Soviet Union and this people, that, you know, the former Soviet Union, they claim that the Beatles were instrumental, played a significant part in the overthrow of communism because the Beatles represented freedom. The Beatles represented Western culture. And the Soviet Union was based on Western culture is bad. Uh, you know, Western culture is corrupt. And on the other hand, the young people in the Soviet Union, uh, you know, the Czech Republic and Poland and Russia and so on, they loved this idea that the Beatles were, you know, the Beatles were this breath of fresh air. The Beatles were, uh, if you watch the Beatles today, young people like you, you might say, they don't seem revolutionary. They don't seem like they're, they're that different or that, you know, extraordinary. But in 1964, they were. They seemed to be, they, they didn't have, they, they didn't project the same image as the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones, oh, you we're tough and we're bad, you know. Um, but, but the Beatles were anti-authoritarians. The hair just the attitude they had. Um, and so this young people picked up on that. And that's why repressive regimes like Soviet Union try to ban them. They didn't want their young people being anti-authoritarian. Now, we can uh, transition uh, back to math. I have, I have one final question for you. Uh, you have a write-up online about why uh, abstract algebra is important for math ed uh, majors, as well as math majors. And sure. You point out one uh, one thing that I actually found is very true, that doing well in an abstract algebra course uh, can really be a push-on to uh, either more learning or just be a really good thing for you in general, because abstract algebra is not necessarily the easiest subject uh, yes. to to grasp. And I was wondering if you could expand just, just a little bit on the idea of uh, the importance or how good it feels to do well in an algebra course. Yeah, I, I give a quote on there, on the, you're talking about my little essay on my website, and I think it's a good illustration of the idea you're, I'm trying to get across, and there was this woman, and many years ago, like 25 years ago, she took abstract algebra, and she was a math major, but her goal wasn't to be a mathematician, her, her little brother had some genetic defect. So her goal from day one, day one as a freshman, is to make some contribution to genetic research. And she thought math was a good way to get started. So she took a math major, but when she went on to graduate school, she went on to major, she actually got a degree in a PhD in genetics. 
but she also got a medical degree because she wants to do not genetics for... <laughs> she wants to combine the study of genetics to cure genetic illnesses, genetic-related illnesses. So anyway, um, I, she was a great student. At, you know, I wrote letters for her to get to graduate school. A number of years after she re got her medical degree and got her PhD in genetics, and she's working in this Center for Communications Research. She's a very high official there, and she publishes papers on genetics in the world's leading journals like New England Journal of Medicine. She's won some awards for her contributions to the field of genetics. And I know all this because our school gave her an award about two years ago, and I, was, I had nominated her for the award, and I presented the award to her. But in any case, so I said to her something like, uh, just joking, I says, oh, I, it's nice to see you use, use the abstract algebra all these years. And, and she laughed, and she says, actually, you know, it was very useful when I was in graduate school and medical school. And I was then I says, in what way? And she says, any time I came up to anything difficult, I said to myself, if I can get an A in abstract algebra, I can get an A in anything. But that's what I mean about the self-confidence. Um, it takes, there's certain mental skills and personal skills. You need to learn a complicated, difficult subject like abstract algebra. You, need, you know, the dedication, you have to be able to concentrate, be able to focus, be able to think abstractly. But these characteristics carry over to other fields. And so that's, what, that's the point she was trying to make. So I think that's, a, you know, that's somewhat, to some extent, true. Hey, well, I uh, want to thank you very much. I actually learned a significant amount about the Beatles today. All right, thank you. <laughs> and thank you very much for the interview. Okay. Well, that is it for another episode of Strongly Connected Components. The music on today's episode was Hard and Firm, the pie song in the beginning, and then the interstitial and outro music that you are hearing right now is from SP12, who you can find over at opsounds.org. If you want to leave any feedback, you can email me at my personal actual, I check it every day, way too many times, email account, samuel at acme 